Welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm a professor of pharmacy practice here and the supporting sponsor of Oncopharm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy here at East Tennessee University. A lot of updates to get to today, both from the European Society of Medical Oncology, or ESMO's annual meeting over the last weekend, as well as uh, the FDA. Been busy, been busy um, uh, with some new, uh, some new uh, drug uh, approval. So let's get right to it. Uh, we're going to have a bit of a cervical cancer focus just based on what came out of ESMO and then what's recently approved. So let's go over just kind of real briefly treatment of cervical cancer, um, locally advanced or, or limited, not limited stage, but, but uh, you know, non-metastatic cervical cancer. Let's treat with cisplatin radiation. Uh, works reasonably well. Then recurrent it comes back or metastatic cervical cancer is treated with combination chemotherapy, platinum, and taxane plus or minus bevacizumab, which we'll come to in a second. Uh, ideally, uh, most of these women uh, who progress, they got cisplatin up front, in which case uh, when they recur or have metastatic disease afterwards, then carboplatin is reasonable to substitute for cisplatin. Uh, with paclitaxel. However, if they did not receive cisplatin, they present with metastatic disease initially, uh, carboplatin has been shown to be inferior to cisplatin if they did not receive cisplatin in the past. So if they already got cisplatin uh, with radiation, then carbopaclitaxel is kind of the standard first-line option here uh, in the States. Uh, Topotecan in place of taxane could be used but is, is more toxic, especially hematologic toxicity. Uh, there are data to support adding bevacizumab, uh, adding that to platinum and, and taxane for the first-line treatment of metastatic cervical cancer. There is a pooled study that shows a, a modest overall survival benefit, um, you know, a hazard ratio somewhere in the 0.7 range, so reasonable benefit. Uh, there's another meta-analysis looking at a whole bunch of different types of studies, and that muddies the water that suggests there's a benefit to BEV. So there probably is uh, benefit to adding bevacizumab up front, but that overall survival benefit is probably small. I think that's important to note. Uh, for women that then progress after their platinum taxane, plus or minus BEV, they could get BEV uh, as a second-line option if they didn't receive bevacizumab up front, or topotecan, or uh, nanoparticle albumin-bound paclitaxel, gemcitabine, or pembrolizumab if they are pdl one positive, uh, combined positive score of 1%. Uh, or if they're MSI high and mismatch repair deficient, you could get pembro. So it's in that setting uh, that we get uh, Kino 826, which was presented at ESMO and published simultaneously in the New England Journal of Medicine. This was a study of 600 uh, women with cervical cancer, uh, median age 50. This is a younger patient population, which is what you would expect with cervical cancer. Uh, you had women as, as young as 22 on this study. 55% uh, white, 45% non-white, which maybe uh, is indicative of the health disparities in the non-white patient population. Cervical cancer largely is a preventable disease, preventable disease uh, with appropriate uh, cervical cancer screening, and that's because similar to colon cancer, cervical cancer often uh, will exist as a, a non-cancerous or precancerous dysplasia lesion for, for a couple years before it then progresses. So you can see it and identify it visually uh, with a pap smear before uh, it progresses to cervical cancer. So it can be removed. Uh, so as long as women have access to the, the appropriate screening, this is a disease that that should be prevented from happening, which is why we've seen cervical cancer uh, rates drop drastically uh, in the last century. 
Uh, it is mostly a, a squamous cell histology. 70% of women in the study had squamous cell histology, some adeno, some squamous adeno uh, mix. 18% were de novo metastatic. The rest had either recurrent or persistent disease, either with or without distant mets. Uh, only 11% were PDL1 negative. Uh, 50% had a CPS above um, 10. Um, now, if you look in the literature on how much PDL1 is expressed, it's a little bit hard to compare uh, different fruits to different fruits. Uh, you see data from a PDL1 expression on the cervical cancer cells from 34% up to 96%, maybe 80 to 90% in other studies. But combined p uh, positive score looks not only at the PDL1 expression on the cancer cells, but also the tumor infiltrating lymphocytes and macrophages uh, in the tissue sample. So while this is a population heavily enriched with PDL1 expressing uh, uh, or CPS positive disease, it doesn't look like that's necessarily cherry picking people who are just PDL1 positive. That very well could be what we see uh, in cervical cancer. And then about two thirds received bevacizumab as well, which was up to physician discretion, as well as the choice of cisplatin or carboplatin as the platinum backbone. They randomized one to one certified by PDL1 expression. Good, bevacizumab use. Okay, great. Um, they're looking at, <laughs> this is funny, this cracks me up. Uh, their primary endpoint was PFS and OS split, and I'm quoting here, across six primary hypotheses. You can't have a primary anything that includes six, right? You can't have a primary focus that is six things. You have primary, primary means one, okay? You can't have <laughs> maybe two. Six is stretching it, so they're looking at yeah, they're splitting their alpha six different ways. First, looking at PFS in the CPS positive, like above one, and then in everybody, and then above 10, and then the same thing in OS. What that means, and you can do that. You can split your alpha a lot of different ways. It just means that the so-called statistically significant value, the p-value that you want, is going to end up being really, really low, much lower than 0.05, which we do see in this case. So, uh Enough with the background. All right, so the results here. The PFS favors Pembro, all right? Hazard ratio of 0.65, p-value less than 0.001, which was statistically significant. Um, and you will see, uh, I'm gonna give you the hazard ratios now by PDL1 status, going from less than one to one to 10%, and then above 10%. And you're gonna see these hazard ratios get more and more impressive. 0.94, wide confidence interval, from 0.52 to 1.7. Uh, one to 10%, 0.68 above 10%, 0.58, uh, and the confidence intervals for those above one and then above 10 are, are do not cross one, so more, uh, more suggestive of benefit with more PDL1 expression. If we look at the overall survival, the hazard ratio also for Avers Pembro, uh, 0.67 p-value, same, zero point, less than 0.001. Hazard ratio if PDL1 was less than 1% is exactly one, with a wide confidence interval of 0.53 to 1.81. For PDL1, 1 to 10%, 0.67, greater than 10%, 0.61. So here are those hazard ratios, again, as you go uh, from little to some to a lot of PDL1 expression. 1, 0 0.67, 0 0.61. So there are a couple ways to look at this. One, you could say uh, only PDL1 positive patients benefit. Uh, and there's a clear trend that as you get more PDL1 expression, you do see. Uh, a greater relative benefit of Pembro over not getting Pembro. Uh, the other way to look at it is this patient population is very heavily PDL1 positive. Only 11% of the patient population is less than 1%. And while it looks like those with the PDL1 negative disease don't benefit from Pembro, that hazard ratio is 0.53 to 1.81. 
So the way that you would kind of interpret that uh, statistically is I'm not confident. You know, it's, it's reasonable that the actual hazard ratio is in line with the 0 0.61, 0 0.67. Maybe it's really like 0 0.8, or it could be 1.8. We don't know. So probably going to give those women that are PD-L1 negative the benefit of the doubt, uh, and, and they should get Pembro. So clear benefit of PFS and overall survival for Pembro added to to taxane plus paclitaxel plus BEV. By the way, uh, in the uh, the forest plot, those who received BEV tended to do better with Pembro than those that didn't. So. So um, probably looking at uh, you know a new standard of care of a quadruplet for these metastatic patients. Um, my my big question with this study seems to be an open and shut no brainer. Is we know that if you did not get cisplatin um, for locally uh, for localized disease, that you should get cisplatin as your your backbone uh, platinum in your in your chemo regimen. This is not reported in the study or in the appendix. Who got how many got cis? How many got carboplatin? And the fact that that's omitted uh, raises some questions for me. It's an easy, it's a sentence. It's a it's a line in a table. It's easy to especially in the appendix. It's not there. Which generally, when somebody hides something from me, I assume the worst. I assume they're hiding it not because of accident. I assume they're hiding it because they they want to hide something. And that I could be wrong about that, but it makes me wonder. If, you know, a lot of folks are getting carbo in the study instead of cisplatin, and so now we've got a maybe an inferior backbone arm, and that's why Pembro uh, looked better uh, in this setting, and maybe it isn't, and it probably is. This is a pretty consistent benefit here, um, but really hope somebody uh, uh, in, in GOG or somebody who has some sway writes a letter to the editor asking uh, that question, and, and they don't dodge, and they do give those numbers. Hope to see that. Okay. But it probably looks like we're, uh, we've got a new standard of care here for metastatic cervical cancer. Um, again, the best thing to do for this is to have wider access to cervical cancer screening for, for younger women. Okay, now, if you progress or when you progress with metastatic cervical cancer, the options are not great. You can go and find topotecan, which has got a lot of activity in the upfront setting. And at least two phase two studies I looked at, response rates of, of nothing. Um, in in um, in the refractory setting here for these folks, so it's in that vein that we get tisotamavudotin uh, uh, or Tivdac, which was approved uh, February twentieth, not February September twentieth, uh, for recurrent or metastatic cervical cancer. Um, this was, as you can assume, an open label, open label single arm study of 101 patients who had received one to two, no more than two, one to two prior regimens, including a platinum. Uh, based chemo, 69% received BEV. The overall response rate was uh, 24%, which is, you know, that's good in, in a refractory setting. Anything above 10% response rate, we'd say that's sign of disease activity. 24% is good, especially it's a, a tough to treat, tough to treat disease. Okay. Uh, now we know vedotin, right? Why don't we just give people vedotin? <laughs> we know vedotin. It's um, uh, monomethyl aristatinate, e, MMAE. It's a microtubule poison. It's been linked to every other uh, antibody under the sun. Uh, tisotamab, we don't know. This is new. So tiso kind of sounds like tissue, like tishutamab. Uh, in fact, some may even pronounce it tishutamab. Uh, and this is an Ig antibody, IgG antibody against tissue factor, tissue factor uh, that is expressed on uh, cell-bound or surface-bound tissue factor on cancer cells. Cervical cancer cells express tissue factor. Lots of cancer cells express tissue factor. So if you ever wonder why cancer, uh, people with cancer are so prothrombotic, they got darn tissue factor on the cell surface of these cancer cells. And yes, the same tissue factor that kicks off the whole extrinsic 
uh, extrinsic uh, coagulation cascade. All right, this drug, this drug uh, is crazy toxic. All right, we'll get to that in a second. The dose is two mg per kg. It is capped at 200 milligrams if you're above 100 uh, kgs. 30-minute infusion over three weeks does require extensive pre-medication for the eyes. Uh, they need corticosteroids before and to continue those for 72 hours after the dose, kind of similar to what you might do with high-dose cytarabine. They need a vasoconstrictor uh, to their eyes. So they need like a visine eye drops or something prior to the, the dose. Uh, they need lubricant eye drops prior to the dose and throughout the time they're receiving this drug all the way up to a month after receiving the drug. Um, they need ice packs to the eyes. All right, so the vasoconstrictor of the eyes, the ice packs, I say, we don't want this drug getting anywhere near the eye, so we're going to decrease blood flow to the eye during the infusion, okay? Luckily, it's a 30-minute infusion, not like a crazy long infusion. Uh, it is a, uh, the MMAE is a 3 or 4 substrate, uh, so there are potential drug interactions for potent 3 or 4 inhibitors. Uh, the MMAE is also metabolized hepatically. Uh, there's no uh, dosing information or study in moderate or severe hepatic impairment, but probably some increased toxicity if they have hepatic impairment. Okay, so... 60% had ocular toxicity, uh, about 4% being grade 3. One patient had ulcerative keratitis that led to a corneal transplant. They had to put in a darn new cornea or two cornei uh, in somebody because of this drug. All right. Oh, also, you can't wear contact lenses while you're on this drug. A peripheral neuropathy occurred in, in about 2 out of 5, 8% uh, grade 3. You'd expect that with vedotin hemorrhage. 62% had hemorrhage. So even though we're blocking tissue factor primarily on the tumor cells, the PI would leave you to bleed, we're probably inhibiting tissue factor, uh, and it's having some effect on the coagulation cascade. 5% um, of those were grade 3 hemorrhages. 44% um, of the hemorrh hemorrhaging was epistaxis. Okay, so that's reassuring that it's not like brain bleeds. 10% uh, hematuria, 10% vaginal bleeding. The median time to hemorrhage, 0.3 months. That's like a week, all right? So it happens quickly. Now, if there is a pulmonary or CNS bleed, it's discontinued permanently. For other bleeds, after the bleeding resolves and the hemoglobin recovers and you rule out some other, uh, you know, um, um, implica not implication, but some other condition that would make them more likely to bleed, you can either give it back or you can stop it. It's very vague. Uh, no mention also about, uh, you know, antiplatelet agents or anticoagulants for these folks on this study, but certainly something that uh, when I see this drug or when I see this drug in somebody, going to be a red flag going off for me when I see this. Uh, pneumonitis occurred 1.3% and there is embryo-fetal toxicity as well. Um, other side effects of no kind of minor, you know, there's some fatigue, some muscle aches, mild myelosuppression as you might expect with fedotin and some increased uh, AST, ALT can be seen. Nothing too worrisome, especially in light of, you know, all the, what is it, like five things you have to do for the eyes? You got to do steroid eye drops, vasoconstrictors eye drops, ice packs, and lubricate eye drops. These people need three sets of eye drops going in their eyes, uh, and they got to go to an ophthalmologist up front, get a slit, uh, an exam via slit, uh, slit lamp, and periodically throughout treatment. Just a whole bunch of stuff going on here. Um, let's see. Next uh, next drug approval to, to talk about on September 15th, uh, Mobocertinib was approved for uh, EGFR exon 20 insertion mutation metastatic non-small cell lung cancer after prior treatment with one platinum-based chemo regimen. This is the same approval of amivantamab, uh, which was approved in May uh, as an antibody. 
that antibody had a response rate of 40%, interstitial lung disease in 3%, rash in 74%, and eye toxicity in less than 1%. Now, it's important to consider this. These have been compared. So you get somebody with an exon 20 insertion mutated non-small cell lung cancer, you're going to be choosing between these two drugs. And we can't really make our, our choice on efficacy, even though the, the antibody looks like it has a, a response rate of 40%, whereas Mobocertin have had a response rate of 28%. Uh, the key is going to be the toxicity, which I'll get to next. Now, mobocertinib is an EGFR exon 20 kinase inhibitor, um, more so than wild-type EGFR. It is also a HER2 and HER4 kinase inhibitor. There is a boxed warning for this drug for QTC prolongation. 11% uh, of people on the study had a 60 millisecond increase in their QTC, so they went from 350 to 410. That's a huge jump. That's a vandetinib type jump. Um, the average uh, increase in QTC was 23 milliseconds, and they actually had a cap in enrollment on the study. If the QTC was above 470, they were not allowed to be included on the study. Major, major drug-drug interactions with this drug as a 3 or 4 substrate uh, and QTC prolonging drug. So like the worst thing you could do is put somebody on an azole and a fungal and mobocertinib, which is going to increase the exposure of mobocertinib, and potentially it's two active metabolites. Uh, and cause maybe some QT prolongation as well. Uh, interstitial lung disease, about 4%. Decreased ejection fraction, so heart failure occurred in 2.7%. Again, it also inhibits HER2 kinase. And diarrhea, 93%. Even though it does inhibit wild-type EGFR as much as the exon 20, still does inhibit some of the wild-type EGFR, as well as HER2 and HER4, which are also epidermal growth factor receptor family uh, transmembrane kinases. This is a scary drug for me to be approved in a hundred and some patients um, with this toxicity profile, and we don't have a ton of information on drug-drug interaction in the real world, so so a very scary drug here with mobocertinib. Uh, amivatinib has a lot of infusion reactions we have to worry about as well, so there's not a great choice one way or the other, but certainly if I had a patient with exon 20 mutated non-small cell lung cancer and significant cardiovascular disease or any other hint of a, of a QT prolonging drug, I would favor the antibody. Uh, and then just uh, recently this week, on the 17th of September, cabozantinib was approved for differentiated differentiated thyroid cancer. Now, this is for the brand of cabozantinib called Cabometics, not to be confused with Cometric, another cabozantinib brand name product, which is approved for medullary thyroid cancer, which I'm not even going to get into for time purposes here. Why, why do that? Ugh. Okay, back to ESMO. A couple really, I think, practice-changing studies out of ESMO. One is Vesper which is a phase three study comparing dose-dense um, perioperative MBAC and cisplatin and gemcitabine in perioperative treatment of muscle invasive bladder cancer. Historically, people have used neoadjuvant chemotherapy prior to cystectomy is the best data we had at curing muscle invasive bladder cancer. Now, you could do MVAC initially, then we had dose-dense MVAC in the, the neoadjuvant setting, which was um, because of the dose-dense part, because we're giving growth factor, uh, had met less uh, neutropenia, but still, it's a really toxic regimen. And in the metastatic setting, gemcitabine cisplatin has been compared to MVAC uh, and shown to be as effective, uh, but a lot less toxic. So we've kind of extrapolated the gemcis data from the metastatic setting and used it in the perioperative setting. This study sought to confirm that there is no difference, basically, between gemcis and dose-dense MBAC in the perioperative setting. So perioperative means they could have had neoadjuvant cisplatin-based chemo before cystectomy, 
or head surgery, then adjuvant chemo. It looks like most of these folks got neoadjuvant chemo, which would be where most of the evidence is. Now, this is a little bit tough to um, to see because I'm I'm looking at uh, I'm looking at slides presented uh, at <laughs> uh, on Twitter that were presented at ESMO. Okay, so take that caveat. Need to wait for the full publication. But the PFS curve seemed to favor dose dense impact, especially those who got neoadjuvant treatment. The OS data is pending, and we'll want to see that. But if you're like a lot of centers and you don't give a lot of dose dense impact, because it is very toxic compared to GEMSYS, uh, which is no walk in the park either, you may want to dust off those dose dense impact order sets and update them because uh, when this comes out, we might be dealing with a new standard of care for those young, healthy, fit muscle invasive bladder cancer patients. They want the best chance of cure. It is looking, it's like early second quarter, I would say, in the game, uh, or, or the 35-minute the mark for uh, soccer fans out there. Uh, it's not quite halftime yet, but it's looking like Dostin's MVAC is going to reemerge uh, um, in the neoadjuvant treatment for muscle invasive bladder cancer. Okay, the last thing to talk about is Destiny Breast 03, which was a comparison of metastatic breast cancer patients, HER2 amplified, who had all received trastuzumab and ataxane. I uh, don't know how many also got trastuzumab plus pertuzumab. And they're randomized either to trastuzumab deruxtecan, which now I realize kind of sounds like Teddy Repskin, or trastuzumab imtanzine, what we used to call TDM1. So this is in HER2 versus Catsila. Now, the primary endpoint is PFS. Boo! Um, now, the PFS curves separate quickly and they separate in a very impressive fashion. Hazard ratio here is 0.28. So we're talking more than a 70% relative uh, lower risk of progression or death with trastuzumab deruxtecan. And the 95% confidence interval here, again, hazard ratio 0.28, 95% CI 0.22 to 0.37, pretty darn narrow, okay? Now there's already a hint of an overall survival benefit with a p-value with a couple zeros after the decimal point. Uh, however, it still does not met, did not meet the pre-specified stopping point, but it really, really looks promising and looks like trastuzumab deruxtecan is going to jump trastuzumab imtanzine as the go-to treatment for HER2 amplified disease after progression on trastuzumab or, or recurrence after trastuzumab-based therapy. Um, so we're making some improvements here in HER2 amplified breast cancer, which is, which is good news for those patients. Okay. That's it for this week. Kind of a big podcast, but there's a lot of stuff to talk about, and that's what I'm going to do. Uh, thank you for listening. You can follow me uh, on Twitter at FarmDeepNip and follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank mm-hmm. you.